Welcome to the Society of Construction Law Australia podcast, the podcast where we look at legal and technical issues facing the Australian construction industry. My name's Melissa Yeo, and I'm chair of the Society's Communications Subcommittee. Today, I'm very pleased to have with me Lucy Greenwood. Now, those of you who travel in arbitration circles or follow developments in arbitration uh, will no doubt have heard of Lucy. Uh, Not only is she highly experienced as an international arbitrator um, with extensive experience in major construction, design, oil and gas and mining disputes, she is listed on arbitral panel rosters from Hong Kong to Jamaica and has been recognized by Who's Who Arbitration, The Legal 500, The Global Arbitration Review, to name a few, for her excellent work and thought leadership. Now, In addition to all of this, and perhaps most importantly, she is a passionate advocate for diverse and greener arbitrations. So with that, I will say welcome, Lucy. Thank you so much for joining me on this Friday evening or Friday morning at your time. Thank you, Melissa. I'm absolutely delighted to be with you today. And thank you so much for that very kind introduction. No problem. Well, I'll I'll kick off by just telling you a little bit about the catalyst for this particular discussion. It was actually a discussion that I had a few weeks ago with Petrina McPherson and Matthew Hickey about online hearings and e-arbitrations and e-mediations. And it occurred to me and, and them that this might have unintended consequences from an environmental perspective and your green arbitration pledge popped into my mind. And I thought, who better to speak to about uh, the impacts that this has had than yourself? (laughs) Absolutely, Melissa. Yes. I mean, I think that's a very good way of putting it. It's slightly unintended, but we have to take the positives where we can. And I strongly suspect that an environmental benefit is going to be one of the key positives that we take from this crazy year. Yes, yes. Well, can you tell me a little bit about, I guess, the impact of arbitration on the environment? Because I don't know that many people probably think about it too much. We just sort of, you know, are in the rush and stress of, you know, making sure that we're prepared for a hearing and that it runs smoothly. Keen to hear from you about, yeah, the impact on the environment. Yes, and that and that is a great starting point because when I when I really started to sort of agitate for want of a better word about uh, environmental issues in our field probably coming up to a couple of years ago now I thought I, I can't just tell people to to change their behavior I'm dealing with a bunch of very conservative lawyers here we need data we need convincing and so with the great help of this greener arbitration steering committee I set to and we analyzed a, a very high value, major international arbitration and very reflective frankly of the type of work I do which is as you say large energy and construction arbitrations so so not far very far out of the realm of what a lot of your listeners would would be um, involved in and we did a very detailed empirical essentially a case study looking at every single element of that complex high value international arbitration that one of the law firms represented on the on the steering committee had been involved in and we drilled right down into the minutiae i mean we obviously looked at flights and as you know particularly business travel is is extremely uh, damaging to the environment but we also looked at 
motorbike couriers, printed pages. Uh, we even went so far as to look into uh, disposable coffee cups, which was quite a traumatic oh, wow. um, experience because uh, we worked out that in international arbitrations really drink an awful lot of coffee. And I will, I will share with you that uh, we estimated that over 3,000 disposable coffee cups were used in that one international arbitration. And Oh, yes, wow. Uh, yes, wow. So, so everyone is wired in an international arbitration, one <laughs> takeaway. But the other takeaway, very importantly, is the carbon emissions just from those coffee cups equate to about 12% of, of a person's average emissions in the UK. So wow. e even the coffee you drink makes a difference or the way you drink your coffee makes a difference. But just returning to the sort of headline figures in terms of that environmental impact and assessment that we did. We looked at an awful lot of elements, but we also took some fairly conservative assumptions. So we only looked at pages printed that were actually delivered to the other side or used at the hearing. We didn't look at all the printing that goes on at law firms behind the scenes and in drafts and redrafts, as we all know. Long story short, we estimated that the uh, number of trees required to be planted to offset the carbon emissions for that one major international arbitration was 20,000 trees, which I will tell you is the equivalent of all the trees in Central Park. At the risk of repeating myself, wow. Yes. <laughs> so pretty staggering figures. And uh, as I say, it, this is something that I started really raising a couple of years ago. And I always couch it with the premise that we have talked about arbitrating climate change disputes, how mm. we can resolve climate change related disputes. We have not or we had not talked about our personal and professional responsibility as individuals yeah. to act to reduce the environmental impact of, of our profession, essentially. So that was mm. really the catalyst to, to start the conversation. When you say you've agitated the topic, can I ask, since you've launched this or be, or begun raising it in the industry, what's been the reception, the feedback that you've you've had? Is it similar surprise and wonder at, oh my goodness, how are we responsible for the trees and all the trees in Central Park in one arbitration? It has resonated with people. And, and obviously, you know, those kind of shock headlines are important. I do, I have had some pushback to say that come on, your case study really deals with a small slice of arbitration work. And, uh, you know, I, I do caveat uh, the, it, when I talk about this data with the fact that it was a major, major case. It was sort of, I think, around 30 to $50 million in dispute. And one thing we are doing mm. at the steering committee level is conducting further research into smaller value cases and obviously medium cases and more domestic arbitrations. But I strongly suspect that the numbers may be slightly lower, but they are still going to be significant. Let me tell you about how we then yeah. looked at that case study and then we reran the data simply in what we call a, a green arbitration way, which wasn't everyone mm -hmm. stays at home and, and you never print anything, but it was reducing the number of flights at every stage of the arbitration down to one flight at every stage, whereas we were in the uh -huh. previous case study, we had an awful lot of flights going to fly to interview witnesses, witnesses coming to you, all those kind of things, just reducing the flights at every stage of the arbitration and no printed bundles. And that, I can tell you, had a dramatic impact on mm. 
on the emissions generated because, frankly, 93% of the emissions in our case study came from flights and pretty much the rest was was printed bundles right. and associated emissions with that. So those are the two yeah. uh, important points that we try and communicate now is please, <laughs> seems a bit ironic now, but mm. fly less and don't print hard copy bundles. Yes, well, and I mean, I, I know certainly from a from a large firm perspective, there's obviously been a push over the last several years to move towards electronic filing and, and all of that. But you still sometimes can never escape advocates and lawyers who just need a hard copy to review. And I think something in that is probably teaching ourselves or training ourselves to just, you know, get really adept at working and editing on the screen. Um, certainly back in the day, I know many practitioners used to dictate and that was a skill that I never learned because I could type quickly and perhaps this is just the next skill that we need to learn is moving away from the hard copies. I'm going to segue into the green arbitration pledge. Can you tell me about the pledge? Absolutely, Melissa. Um, I mean, this started really as a very small promise on my website that I was concerned about the way arbitrations were managed. And then personally, I, as, a, as an arbitrator, would would promise that I would run my arbitrations in as environmentally friendly way as possible. And I would encourage counsel and parties appearing before me to do that as well. And really, as I say, it started very small with just making sure that in my procedural orders, I would always say that the default would be electronic filing unless members of the tribunal requested hard copies or unless individual documents had to be printed out. So so really, it was sort of baby steps, because as you say, lawyers are, are very traditional creatures, and we, we don't we don't do change well. <laughs> so that's how it began. And then really, it just caught the attention, I think, of the wider arbitration community. And I ended up mm. forming the steering committee and really developing the Green Pledge into a far broader global campaign to raise awareness, start a conversation about these issues, but also try and deliver uh, sustainable long-term change. In our field, mm. as you know, we're, we're really quite good about talking about things. We're not actually as good mm. about making concrete changes to the way we operate. And frankly, in terms of the climate, we don't have time. We don't have time for the next 10 years no. to spend talking about this issue. We have to actually all change the way we behave. And that may sound quite stark, but it has to be said. And we can't mm. go on running our arbitrations in the way we were running them. I did my first arbitration in 1998. And really, when you look at the way arbitrations were running up to sort of at least 2018, 2019 even, it didn't look that much different from the way they were mm. run 20 years ago. So I brought together this fabulous steering committee of now we're up to over 40, 45 people. And it's it, I'm so proud of it because it is so diverse. I started off by asking for volunteers on social media to come forward if, if they wanted to be involved. And then gradually I sort of um, you know, went out and asked particular individuals who I knew had a skill set or an interest that I, I wanted to sort of capture and, and enhance. And it, it is phenomenally di diverse and passionate. So we are working on, at the moment, producing what we're calling our green protocols. And this is really to try and enforce that level of change we're hoping for. 
So it'll be a best practice guide to almost every for every actor in the arbitration. So on the steering yeah. committee, we, as I say, we're from we're very diverse, and I have representatives from across the board. So hearing venues, I have legal journalists, legal tech people, I have obviously lawyers um, and arbitrators. But uh, what we've tried to do with the protocols is to produce, as I say, a best practice guide for an arbitration conference organiser, for an arbitration hearing venue. How can you do it in a more environmentally friendly way? It occurs to me as you're speaking that Obviously, changing behavior is difficult, but if there is a protocol that sets it out pretty clearly, I wonder if we might get to a point where aspects of the protocol or indeed the entire protocol could be incorporated into procedural orders and those sorts of things could become required as as arbitrations go on in the future. Uh, What are your thoughts on that front? I mean, I think that's absolutely possible. And And I do wonder, again, just going back to the pandemic, whether... A, we've seen this huge change uh, in terms of not flying, which has, frankly, had environmental benefits. But I think more importantly, looking to the future, we as as lawyers have had to fundamentally change our behaviour this year. Where I'm going with this is whether it has opened up a, a discussion and a debate about running things in a different way that can actually help this us to sort of bed in these changes that we want to see on the environmental side uh, more easily. Mm-hmm. Now we are having these conversations about, okay, virtual hearings are not a substitute for in-person hearings in the way mm-hmm. we have been trying to make them be a total substitute. However, we can stop now, look at all the experience we have gathered together during the course of this year and take those parts that have worked well from the remote engagement that we've had and build on them. And in a way, I hope that sort of open discussion really allows us to, to bring in these, these elements of behavioural change that we need for, for the environment, frankly. Well, absolutely. I mean, I think the, the pandemic has certainly forced us to change the way we do things. And I think perhaps many might be surprised at the fact that we did it. We did change. I mean, I have two screens on my dining room table and I can work from home just as efficiently as I do from the office. And I, I know that many others are in the same position. So that scary sort of, well, you know, not sure you can really do everything you do working from home. I think that that has been dispelled to a large extent, which can only be beneficial for change going forward. Um, so I, I do, I think that's that's fantastic. And in respect of online hearings, I mean, even if you don't do online hearings for everything, if you were to leave the final hearing to be in person and do all your interlocutory hearings online, then there's a great step in the right direction. And I'm sure you could probably tell me, you know, what kind of a difference in terms of carbon footprint that would make. But I mean, it seems to be, as always, better than nothing. I'll take you back to when I made that post on LinkedIn and and for our listeners so that they have the benefit of understanding the word. And I'm going to get you to pronounce it because I can't pronounce it. Fly skagam. (laughs) I I am not going to do that either. It is the Swedish word, the Swedish word for flight shame. So yes, yes, scam badge. (laughs) Yes. And I mean, look, all I did to merit that was offset my carbon for a flight because it occurred to me and it was something so simple. It was push a button and pay, you know, however much, I don't know how much it was, but I thought to myself, well, why wouldn't I? 
it's something so little, it's something so simple. And if you can do something as opposed to nothing, then perhaps we do that. And then you take one step and then you take another step. And perhaps then all your interlocutory hearings are online or you don't have, everyone has their own coffee mug (laughs) and that sort of thing. Or, you know, you come to an agreement about printing. I wouldn't want people to be discouraged because it seems like such a big problem. Well, I think that's really, really such an important point, as you say, do do something rather than do nothing. And, uh, you know, the background to the fleek scam or flight shame badge was that I, I, I wrote this post back in January saying, you know, we we as, a, as an industry had flight pride when we should have flight shame. Mm. And uh, as you say, um, it's simply acknowledging that there is an impact to me getting on this plane. And as you, you say, you offset the carbon of that. Um, so I sent you a badge and uh, I'm so <laughs> glad to see you, see you wearing it today. Um, yeah. And... Uh, <laughs> What is good to obviously have those conversations in our green protocols, we lay out all these levels that you can do. Obviously, it's better not to fly. We've seen now that you can certainly do an awful lot of preliminary discussions on the platform we're using now rather than jumping on a plane. And we're also seeing really encouraging things. And I don't think this has had enough press, but if you are an arbitrator and you're sitting on SCC, Stockholm Chamber of Commerce Matters, you can recover the costs of offsetting your flights as an expense. And I think that's ah. a real step forward because, again, you know, it will, first of all, encourage uh, arbitrators to do that, but also it will start a conversation about, you, about this issue, which is so important. Just turning to the pandemic, is there any data that you've collected w- with respect to how that has accelerated things? Or is it pretty much, I gather it all just stopped, so we would have saved all of the trees in Central Park many, many times over. Has there been any analysis as to look at what we've achieved, albeit accidentally or for, for another purpose, which um, is obviously very tragic? But uh, interested to know, I mean, if you see the difference tangibly... I mean, the short answer is not yet in the in the arbitration uh, community at all. Um, as I say, the steering committee have been very busy working on these other uh, layers of the case study for the for the smaller and medium arbitrations. And we're all volunteers, and and you're very conscious that particularly during the pandemic, um, there's been a, an awful lot more of juggling of other things and with mm. uh, children out of school for months and things there's been a lot of competing interests on, uh, yes. on people's time so I, I would love to do that piece of work and uh, it will be relatively easy to identify those cases that were ongoing in sort of February March certainly in the UK and and that then went online. In my practice, mm-hmm. I, I saw a number of hearings that I had scheduled for June, June, July time were then pushed to the autumn because people still wanted to do an in-person hearing. And, and then mm-hmm. they, I think, more reluctantly ha- did actually go to remote hearings because A, people saw that it was it was a reasonable substitute, as I say, I don't believe it's a, it's a complete substitute. Um, but B, they also, there's the desire just to get it, get it done and sort of acceptance. That yeah. We're not going to be moving to, we're not going to be moving back to that full in-person uh, experience very soon. Obviously, this is um, a Society of Construction Law Australia podcast. I'm really interested to know your thoughts about, you know, what all of this means for the construction industry and and maybe any suggestions that you might have as to how, 
you know, lawyers practicing in construction or even, you know, uh, companies, uh, principals, contractors can, uh, if, if they so choose, uh, find ways to advocate for um, greener arbitrations and, and have these things um, implemented going forward. Because I think ep- episode 25, I believe, which I just did with Petrina McPherson and Matthew Hickey, one of the things that Petrina identified was that the cost is so much less. So not only do you have this immense environmental benefit, but from a cost perspective, you're not paying for first-class flights, you're not paying for hotels, you're not paying to fly witnesses from all over the world, you're not having to go and necessarily visit them in person or convene you know, uh, interlocutory hearings in person with decision makers from around the world. I mean, the impact was was astronomical. Um, and I know obviously construction is a very heavy user of arbitration. Do you have any any insights as to you know what we might do or or how if construction might even be a bit of a pioneer in this in this space? Yes, and and just picking up on Katrina's point about cost, she's absolutely right. And and one element we haven't really publicised of our case study was the fact that we ran the numbers and looked at precisely that question: is it is it cheaper? to run an mm. arbitration in a more environmentally friendly way. And, and as I say, by making those two changes that I mentioned earlier in the podcast, uh, flying less and um, not printing the bundles, um, resulted in a, in a 40% saving of disbursement costs. And we weren't factoring in the lawyer time. It was purely in disbursements. And obviously, as yeah. we know, there's significant lawyer time goes into, frankly, preparing, checking the bundles, goes into cost of travel, traveling indexes, you're, you're, you're yeah. charging your time, and so yeah. on. So she's absolutely right in that. And I think we all have to acknowledge that coming out of the pandemic, there is going to be a huge squeeze on legal spend. Um, and this is going to be increasingly mm. important to clients. Um, and and in I mean the construction industry, as we both know, is uh, is a particular culprit when it comes to impact on the environment. And I I <laughs> I, I say that with all due respect to to my clients and uh, those that appear before me. Um, but what I <clears throat> excuse me, what I am seeing is companies across uh, across the globe really uh, embracing um, ESG principles in the way they act, so environmental, social and governance principles, mm-hmm. and really putting this at the heart of their philosophy, company philosophies, and rightly so. And I mm-hmm. think we, as you, essentially service pr- providers to those companies, need to make sure that we are reflecting in our practices those type of core principles in relation to environmental and social behavior and 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 we are doing that I well I go back to the fact we've talked a lot and maybe not achieved quite so much but we are I was going to say we we are doing that certainly in relation to uh, diversity and inclusion where we have lagged behind and we have Mm. seen that clients have been asking uh, for us to provide more diverse legal teams um, more diverse arbitration to arbitration panels, those kind of things. Uh, and I, I really feel that the environment, as I, I said at the start, is something we haven't particularly flagged up to ourselves as something we should change. So so I, I, I really see that there's 
two two key benefits there. One is providing um, a, a more streamlined, cheaper service to, to the cl construction clients. And two is reflecting what I am seeing, and I, I'm sure you are too, in, in the construction industry is a, is a greater awareness of their environmental impact. And we need to be, as I say, reflecting that. I want to um, give people direction as to how, where they can find the Green Pledge if they're so interested, where they can sign up and all of that. Absolutely, uh, Melissa. Yes, we, we now have a standalone website. So it's moved away off my website and it's a very simple website called greenerarbitrations.com. And anyone can go there and, and sign up to sign, sign up to the guiding principles of the Green Pledge, but also just to show their support for the campaign. We, we are active on LinkedIn. We have a, um, a LinkedIn page that people can follow. That would really help us. And uh, increasingly, we're getting support from the arbitration institutions. Hong Kong International Arbitration Center have just said that they're going to sign uh, the Green Pledge as an institution. And we have a number of other um, institutions represented on the steering committee. We're really pushing the institutional signatories as well as the individual signatories, which is really exciting, actually. Well, I've definitely signed up. Actually, I believe I believe I got an email from you saying, "Can you publish my name?" Yes, you can. I don't know if yes. I ever responded. To you. Yes, you can. <laughs> yes, I remember you. That. Is there anything else that we haven't covered that you'd like to tell us about that our listeners would want to know about, or that that we can do to help? Rather than just say, let let's carry on talking about this, I, I will be inviting those people listening to to make a change. And as you say, there are all sorts of level of changes which you can make um, going down at the bottom to, to carbon offset, but uh, eating less meat, no, no plastic bottles in hearing rooms, jugs of water in hearing rooms. If you're in a developed nation, why are we having plastic, plastic bottles scattered around hearing rooms? I think challenging the norms, I think in big law firms, it's hard as a junior associate to speak up and say, do you really mean it when you're asking me to print this 150-page document? Um, it's hard to do that if a partner's just said, oh, go off and produce this. But as I say, it is incumbent on all of us to act. And, and those are the ways that you may not think you're making a difference, but in fact, you are. Do you think that any of the institutions might include anything in their rules about it? Like, I know that you're developing the protocol, but would that do you ever see that perhaps that could be something that institutions might take upon themselves to include as part of their rules that people might want to adopt? And that might be something that it could be a selling point for certain arbitral institutions as, you know, look, our rules, we have an entire chapter on how to run a green arbitration. And, and it, when you sign up to our rules, this is what you sign up to. I think it's certainly possible. As I, I mentioned, the SCC, Stockholm Chamber of Commerce, have, have already taken on certain aspects of this in the way they now saying you can recover your cost of carbon offset if you're an arbitrator working on their matters. And I, I do hope that in the future they they do incorporate some kind of reference to the green protocols. And similarly, arbitrators, we, we, we're planning on producing model wording for um, procedural order number one. Um, and again, if it goes in there, you have that conversation even if you put a modified version in or you, again, arbitration is so flexible. And I, this is where I go back to what I hope we do 
as we come out of this pandemic is take what's been good and build on it. And we can do that because we have that flexibility in arbitration. So we can tailor each case to the particular <laughs> circumstances of it. And so we, we should be having those open conversations earlier than I think we, like everyone, we sort of default to the traditional model and we shouldn't be doing that in 2020. We should be really looking to the future and ditching that traditional model and trying to build on this great flexibility that we always talk about again. Um, but do we really use it to its fullest extent? Yeah, I agree with you. Thank you so much for your time, Lucy. It's been fabulous to meet you. Oh, you're masterful at this, Melissa. Uh, excellent. All right. Have a great weekend, Melissa. Thanks so much for listening to my discussion with Lucy Greenwood. If you're interested in learning more about greener arbitrations and what you can do to drive sustainable change, you can visit her website, greenerarbitrations.com. And also, if you would like to become a member of the Society of Construction Law Australia, you can find all the details to join up at scl.org.au.